Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. There's a commentator um, named James Boyce, and he talks about these last three verses in the book of Habakkuk as some of the best verses in all of Scripture. And I think that's a very strong statement. And to prove his point, um, James Boyce tells the story of Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin, he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, but he had a high view of Scripture. He, he did like Scripture. Um, and so some friends of his lived in, when he was traveling in Paris, he had some friends or acquaintances that he was, he was meeting with regularly. It was either at a bar or a pub or something like that. And they began to uh, challenge <clears throat> The Bible. They begin to challenge Benjamin Franklin's adoration for the Bible. They say, I can't believe you would like the Bible. It's such a silly book. Why would you even put any hope or trust in such a silly book? And so Benjamin Franklin thought it was to be clever because these guys were such, they, they wanted to be very cultural, like sophisticated guys. They were always reading poetry and ancient, ancient writings. And so he came up with the idea one day after hearing all their jokes and all their mockery toward him, he came up with the idea of saying, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to bring the Bible and secretly show them, read scripture, and they won't know it. And so he said, look, I've got, guys, some, some ancient poetry that I want to read you. And so he opened up his, he opened up, uh, I guess he wrote it somewhere else so it doesn't look like Bible. And he, he read Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And the, all of these sophisticated men who appreciated ancient writing but hated the Bible, they said, that is one of the most beautiful poems that I have ever heard. And he said, they said, where do, where do we find that? He said, the Bible. <laughs> Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. And the reason why these verses are so rich, and the reason why they speak such volumes, even to the hardest of skeptics, is because in these verses, what we'll see today is in these verses, we can find joy even in the midst of hardship. We can find hope even in the midst of great despair. And this is what challenged the mind of the skeptic. Now, in our culture, this, this is why the Bible is such a relevant book, because in our culture, this challenges us as well, because it talks about, these verses, it talks about how in order for God to show you that he is enough, in order for you to find true hope and true joy and true fulfillment only in him, sometimes and often, he has to take things away from us to come to that reality, and we, in our culture, do not like to talk about God or anyone taking things away from us. If you can think about songs, we, we rarely hear songs where, uh, where someone has lost something, unless it's a girlfriend, unless it's a breakup song. That's the only kind of lost songs we hear. Otherwise, you're like Tears in Heaven, Eric Clapton. We can remember lost loss in songs, but it's rare that we find it. If anything, in our culture, we talk about gaining things. Now, I'm a, friend, I'm a fan of hip-hop. I love studying and reading lyrics to hip-hop songs. That's the nerdy thing that I do. Um, it makes me feel cool for whatever reason. And um, one of the guys, I'm mostly, I'm, I'm, honestly, I'm, I am um, just very interested in reading his lyrics is Jay-Z. Uh, Jay-Z, I think, is a great songwriter. I don't uh, endorse him at all as a musician or an artist. I'm not saying go buy his album, but I am saying he's a good songwriter. And 
in his first al- or his latest album, uh, Magna Carta, Holy Grail, he has a song called Picasso Baby. And I'm not going to read you the lyrics for obvious reasons, um, but I will highlight some of the points that he makes. He talks about the very first line of the song. He talks about how he wants a painting of Picasso in his house. He goes, no, no, actually, I don't even want it in my house. I want it in my castle. I want a castle now. My house, my mansion's not enough. I want a castle. And then he talks about the kind of girls he wants. He wants this girl to look a certain way and to act a certain way. And then he talks about how he wants a million dollars. He goes, no, 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 that's not enough. I want a billion dollars. No, absolutely, absolutely not. I want a trillion dollars. And so he's consistently talking about how it's not enough. And then at the very end of the song, he talks about how he wants a Mona Lisa painting beside his bed. And it's not the, the Mona Lisa painting that we see today. It's a, it's, a, it's a modified one where she's prettier, right? He goes, I want that. That's what I want. And so what he's consistently talking about is I, I have a lot, but I want more. And what I want is never going to satisfy me. And so it's always showing us how it doesn't truly satisfy. Even, even before that, Jay-Z in his last album, um, it was Blueprint. It was a Blueprint album. He has a, a song on there called Forever Young, and it was like a kind of a remake of the Napoleon Dynamite song, you know, the 80s classic song. And uh, in that song, he talks about how, again, he, he wants, he's, he says, we're living life like we're in a video. Um, we have... We never get old. The champagne, it never gets cold. We Beautiful girls are always stopping by. Uh, it's a perfect day that never ends and it lasts a lifetime. What he's talking about is really heaven, but he wants it on earth. And he wants, he wants everything to be at his disposal and he can't get enough. It's never enough. And so the thought for us when we are fed constant things. And that's the message that our culture consistently preaches to us every day. You cannot have enough. You're never satisfied until you can have this thing. Oh, you got your update on your phone? You got to have this next update, and then you're satisfied. Oh, you want this car? Oh, you have that car? Oh, this, this car will really satisfy you. This food will really satisfy you. This diet will really satisfy you. And we're taught that our whole life. And so when we get to the point of the fact that something might be taken away from us, we freak out because we find our hope so often in things and not the creator who brought us into this world to begin with and created those things. But the reality is this. All of us in this room are one phone call away from our lives being totally wrecked. We are one phone call away from hearing a a terrible tragedy or terrible loss that could totally reshape the framework of life as we know it. And the reason why I know that is because I talk to lots of you. And I've met with multiple, m- many of you over the last month. There's people in this room right now within this last month that I know personally that I can see your faces that you have gotten that call this month. And that's how real this is in this room. That's how true this is, that you are one phone call away from everything that you know to be totally stripped from you. And then you, in that, you still have to find that he is enough. Now, this is a horrible way to start a sermon, is it not? I mean, this is very gloomy, okay? But here's the thing. Where I want to take you this morning is going to bring us, hopefully, if we, if we wrap our minds around this truth, it should bring us great joy and great comfort knowing that we have a sovereign God who's in control of all things. And I want to show you why the skeptics in Paris that when they heard the words of God, 
that they saw it was the most beautiful poem that had ever been written. So this morning, I'm going to show you Habakkuk 3. But before I do that, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. Habakkuk chapter 1, we know Habakkuk has, is a prophet who's telling God what to do. He's in a place uh, in Judah where everyone around him is living in disobedience. They're living in sin. And he goes, God, I've had enough of sin already. I've had enough of crazy people around me already. How many of us have ever prayed that type of prayer? God, I've just had enough of all the crazy people around me. And then he goes, when are you going to deal with these sinful people? And then God says, no, I am going to deal with them. I'm not going to deal with them the way that you think I am. I'm going to actually raise up a more wicked nation, the Babylonians, and they're going to judge the sins of Judah. He goes, well, that's not what I thought you were going to do, but I, all right, I'm going to have to trust you on that. And so finally, by chapter 3, by chapter 2, he, God explains how he is going to then judge the Babylonians for their sin. But then in chapter 3, Habakkuk finally gets to the point where he realizes that he needs to trust in the sovereign God. And then he, at the end, he goes, look, I don't know if I like what you're doing, God, but I still love you and I still have to trust you. Because in that, I, I believe that there's, there's joy there. And then here is where he arrives at at one of the greatest conclusions, I think, of any book in the Bible is in verses 17 through 19. So let's read it. This is Habakkuk rejoicing in the Lord. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, nor the, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now Habakkuk, remembering what God is about to do, that he is in a land of unbelievers who do not want to love God. And he's asking God, when are you going to deal with it? He says, I'm bringing the Babylonians. They're going to come and wipe out everything that you see. And then Habakkuk, he stops and thinks for a moment, okay, now what, that's, what this means, God, is that you are going to take away everything that I know, but also he's thinking about resources after. Even if Habakkuk's life is spared, even if he doesn't die at the hands of the Babylonians, he still has to live his life in a place that has been totally destitute. So he begins to think through, okay, food. The fig tree won't blossom. What's a fig tree? Well, it gives us preserves. That means we ain't going to have no cake. You're going to take away cake, God? You're going to take away delicious delights that I would get at Starbucks, you're going to strip those away from me. Those cake lollipops are going to be gone, God. You're doing that. This is the way that he was here. You are going to strip away a fig tree for me. How about fruit on the vines? I won't have any fruit from the vines. I have to drink water. Nothing else. I cannot enjoy any other flavors. There's no slushies, God. You're stripping that away from me. Stripping away coffee, right? God, what are you doing, right? It's November. These olives, no olives. No, no ways to cook. No fields to produce. There's nothing. I have to trust you. What about livestock? It's cut off. It's been stolen. Your animals have been stolen. There's no way to harvest Nothing. I want you to feel the tension that Habakkuk feels of total destitute. His, not only his people are being destroyed, but his land is being destroyed. And I remember when I think about hunger, we don't think about it well, do we? I mean, we don't even know what that's like. I mean, the, the closest, and this is even embarrassing to talk about, but during 
Hurricane um, Irene back in 2011, I remember our power was out. And we didn't stock up well. I mean, I'm a meat eater, man. I'm, I'm, I'm a meat eater. And when I can't have it, I go crazy, right? And I remember going to um, uh, Bojangles when it reopened and power came back on, like after three days or something like that. And it was like a zombie apocalypse. People were insane. They're foaming from the mouth. They're like, Bleh! and like, and they're waiting to get in line and they're just crazy. They want chicken. And, you know, it's just like that for chicken. And I can't even imagine what we would be like if we were really starving in America. I, I can't even imagine that. But Habakkuk, he's in a place where his people and his land are destroyed. And, and God warned the Israelites about this. He said, listen, if you do not obey me, this will happen. I mean, look, I'll, I'll read to you Leviticus twenty six eighteen. He says, in spite, or in spite of this, you will not listen to me, and then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. This is what God's saying to the Israelites. He says, I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their Fruit. Now, what you'll see is a picture in the Old Testament. When you see um, spiritual, when you see unhealthiness in, in spiritually in a land, when you see a spiritual decline in a country, what you'll see is then the land stops harvesting. That's what you'll see in the Old Testament. And this is because this is a conditional covenant. This is the old covenant that we have in, in Israel. And it means, like God is saying to Israel, if you do this, then I will do this. That's how he worked in the old covenant. When we're in the new covenant era, he does not work that way. He doesn't say, if you go to church, then you will get a job. He doesn't do that. He, he doesn't judge us on our performance. But here, this is what you have. He's like, listen, if, if you obey me, then I will make your land flourish. If you don't obey me, your land won't. And the problem with that is, if we read too far into this, and we, we think we're Israel, and that every promise that God makes to Israel is a promise that he makes to us, we're going to be really messed up. I mean, every, I, I get so frustrated if I go to church and I hear on July 4th, someone does the classic 2 Chronicles 7.14. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek their face. I will turn from their wicked ways and I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. And they say, see America, if we can just be humble, he'll heal us. And now our land will be, will be full. We'll, our harvests will be plentiful. And then just trust God. and pride, be, Don't be so prideful, America. I am so tired of hearing that on July 4th. It has nothing to do with America, okay? And if we're reading ourselves into the promises, that's the promise that he made toward Israel. That's what he said to the Israelites. Are we the Israelites? No, Israel's not the church. We are the church. And so we don't look at it saying, if we do this, then God will do this. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. I hate that sound. <laughs> and so we can't look at ourselves through the lenses of Israel, but there's still a principle that I want to show you that's really rich. And the reason why God would do this to Israel, he would say, listen, if you are not obeying me, if you are not listening to me, if you're not heeding my words, I will curse your land. The reason why he did that, 
The reason why he did that is to remind them of the garden. In the garden, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. And from that, they were banished from the garden where God's provision was available to them. God's provision was absolutely at their disposal. And when we see now sin in the world, and when we see vines that don't grow, or trees that don't grow, or trees that die, I had to get a a tree cut down in my backyard because it died recently. I had this crazy old man climb from the tree and he cuts it down from the top. It's like a 70 foot high. He's like 60 years old with like a duct tape chainsaw on on his waist. It was crazy. And when I see that tree coming down, that massive structure that God ended its life, I'm reminded of two things. I'm reminded, first of all, of my depravity that the God gives and the God takes away, but I'm also reminded that this world is not my home. Everything around me is temporary. I can't fall in love with my trees in my backyard because they're not going to last forever. Nothing is temporary except for him. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, he understood this very well in Romans 8. He, he actually captures this same idea that we're talking about. Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of, uh, that is to be revealed in us. For the creation, listen, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Do you see that? Creation waits for Christ to return again. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And what Paul is capturing here is like creation itself knows that it's dying and it awaits a new heaven and a new earth at the coming of Christ. So we can't put our hope in temporary things. We can't live for temporary things that salvation only comes from God. And I know that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we think we are held up by creation. We think it's creation that feeds us. When we think about food, we think that feeds us, so I need food to live. Or the air that I breathe, that keeps me alive, so I need air to, to live. That's true, but it's really God who is doing that. It's really God who is feeding you. It's really God that is causing your lungs to hold up. It's causing your heart to beat. That is the Lord. It is not so much as creation. It's the fact that it's him using creation for his glory. And we have to find our hope not in created things, but in him, in the creator. And that's, that's what he's trying to do. That's what he has to do with Habakkuk for him to come to this realization. And this is why in Habakkuk 3, verse 18, he responds in this way. Because I want you to think about this. He's taken away fig trees. He's taken away olives. He's taken away vines uh, that, that would produce fruit, fields, cattle, everything. Their barns are empty. Nothing. Nothing. And Habakkuk comes to the realization in verse 18. Yet, in spite of all that, God, that you did in my life, yet... I will rejoice in what? The Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Two things that I want you to see. He has two things. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. This is an outward expression. He's visibly excited that God has 
placed him in these circumstances that where he would find joy only in the Lord. He said, I am visibly excited. I'm rejoicing with my, with my mouth when I see other people. I want to talk about the goodness of God. When you see me, I'm excited about the goodness of God in my life. And then he says, he talks about then, I will, listen, take joy in the God of my sufficient. I will take it. I will internalize it. I will capture it. I will go out with claws if I have to, have to bring it into my life and it becomes the fabric of who I am. I will be a person of joy. There's two things that he says. I'll rejoice. That's, that's the outward expression. And then I will internalize this inner joy. This is what the Lord will do with me. And there's a difference between joy and happiness, okay? Joy is something that helps us sustain throughout the hardest and most difficult circumstances. Happiness is incredibly circumstantial. I have a fantasy football team. If they win, I'm going to be happy. If they don't, I'm not, right? That's, that's how silly and that's how shallow our happiness is. If you slap me right now, I will be mad. I'm not going to lie. I'm red hair. I'm going to be really mad. You do not slap me, right? I will not be happy. But does that mean that I lose my joy? Not necessarily. Joy is something very different. It's something that we internalize, something that we take. In the way that he describes his joy, he then talks about in verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He's allowed to say it. He makes me tread on my high places. And it says the choir master with string instruments that the song is over. His song ends here. This is where he ends it. The Lord is my strength. And in there, he, he actually quotes basically David in Psalm 18, where he says, he makes my feet like deers. He sets me secure on the heights. And then Psalm 18, 36, we'll have it up on the screen. He says, you gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. And he's, David is describing in Psalm 36, or Psalm 18 rather, in verse 36. He's describing the context of that is him dealing with an oppressive king named Saul. This controlling, arrogant king Saul. And he's like, Lord, I can't find security in this king, but I have to find my security in you. And you have such a way, God, that you make me sure-footed. That's the language that is used there, sure-footed. He says, like, you've made me like a deer, where it's, he's sure-footed. Now, if you are from Eastern North Carolina, you will understand this analogy much better. Because you hunt. And you've been in the field. And you've been up in the tree stand with tobacco in your mouth, Right? even the girls, um, and you're sitting up and you are looking out in that field and when you see that buck or that doe come out into the, out in the wide open from the, from, from the, the trees, see I hunt a lot, <laughs> uh, that's what I've heard, um, he's sure-footed, he's cautious, you don't ever see him stumbling around. They're sure about their steps. And then the way that David describes it is you, you make wide, you make a wide place for me to step. There's no question, God, on where I might step. You've made this so clear. You've made my path so clear. And I find it to be very interesting that people often say, well, Christianity is silly because Christianity is a crutch. Oh, it's more than that. You're dead. You're made alive in Christ. It's not a crutch. It's your life support. 
That's how you live. You can't live without him. You are nothing without him. He is everything. I mean, this is a constant thing we we preach over and over and over again. You cannot find your hope in created things. You have to find your hope in him. And we consistently say that the treasure is him, not the created things. The treasure is him. And there is where you find security. So we're not just attacking things. We're not, we're not just poking fun at worldliness. We're not doing that. We're saying we want you to find security in him. We want your steps to be made wide. That, that's what we want. We want you to be sure-footed. We want your security to be built on him. And, and the, the, the hope in that is when we fail, because we will, even in our frailties, he will get the glory. And we'll land where Habakkuk landed. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's where we want to be this morning. And look, we can talk about miracles. We can go in the gospels and we can show you how people have been healed and that people have been raised from the dead. And there's people who couldn't walk, they now can walk. There's people who couldn't see, that now can see. And we could talk about those miracles all day long. This is where you find your hope. You can look for signs, you can look for wonders and that is where you will find security, believer. We could say that. But the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle is where believers like you and me find joy and satisfaction in him in spite of the most difficult of circumstances. Let me prove my point. Last week, we, we, we talked about a very difficult passage. We talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul he ends up thanking God for giving him a demon. He says, God, thank you so much for giving me the demon that would harass me because I'm kind of arrogant. And God, you and your goodness saw my arrogance and to keep me from being arrogant, you let a demon harass me. You raise it up and I've asked you to stop and I've asked you to take it away, but you won't. But I'm just going to find my hope in you. We, we, talk, we talked about that, but let me give you the, the backdrop of that passage. I'm going to read to you. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through, 5, 1 through 10. And we're going to look at how this is a greater miracle than anything. I'm going to show you this. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Paul says this, I must go on boasting. There is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on the visions and the revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. Verse 3, and I know, I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I heard, and he heard these things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. Now, let me give you what, what's happening behind this. Um, Paul is dealing with, in Corinth, he finds people who brag about their ethnicity. And they think that they're better because they're a part of a certain race. It's very ridiculous. And not only that, they brag about their spiritual experiences. Well, we believe in this many gods, and we trust in this many, and we've had this spiritual high. And what you say, Paul, really doesn't matter because we are better because we've experienced these things. And Paul says, no, 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 listen, listen. And you can even see it in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Paul begins to see revelations from God about heaven. And God begins to show Paul, the Apostle Paul, what heaven is like. 
And he says, Paul says, and I saw a man who was in glory. He was in the third heaven. What, that is, what does that mean? I have no idea, okay? But it sounds awesome, okay? And look, he's in paradise. And then he's enjoying, he is, it, it's unbelievable that he's in this glorified state. But guess what? I'm not even going to tell you about that. I could totally use that. You, you're using all these arguments about your spiritual experience and what happened to you and the things that you saw and the things that you've, you've lived. But listen, I have actually seen heaven myself. I have seen it with my own eyes. I've seen someone in a glorified state and I could totally use that right now to win this whole argument that God would show me that. I could do that, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to tell you that. That's not the most important miracle. I find this interesting because I feel like in our culture, like I've said this before, every five years or so, someone writes a book about how they died and went to heaven. And it's like New York Times bestseller. Interestingly enough, they're all different. So I don't know what heaven they went to, but they're all different. It seems like they would be kind of the same, right? Just heaven. But Paul could totally do that. He could put, look, look, I have been, I have seen it with my own eyes and I can write a New York Times bestseller. I make millions of dollars explaining how heaven looks like. And look, if, if you're one of those people and you're trying to find what heaven is like, the Bible doesn't say a lot about it. There's a reason for that. It's a mystery. And if you're trying to find your hope based on a six-year-old's story about heaven, I feel sorry for you. There's something greater here that I want to show you this morning. There's something more real than that. If Paul wasn't allowed to talk about it, why would a six-year-old? Right? You all right? So he takes him to this place. He says, I've seen heaven with my own eyes. I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm going to tell you about something else. And this is the greatest miracle in all of Scripture that he shows him. He says in verse uh, 5, 2 Corinthians 12, 5, On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. You see that? I could tell you about heaven right now, God. I could tell you about heaven right now, you skeptics. I could tell you that and explain to you what heaven's like, but I'm not going to do that. God doesn't even want me to do that. What God wants me to boast in now is not how beautiful heaven is, but it's how beautiful my weaknesses are. Do you see that? Do you see the irony in that? It's very strange. And he says, though, I, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. So heaven, what I saw is the truth, but I refrain from it. So that no one may think more of me than he sees me or hears from me. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, and persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
And I love this. Because what Paul is showing these skeptics, what Habakkuk is showing us, that God is most glorified in our lives. We're satisfied with him, even in the midst of weakness, even in the midst of hardship, that we would get the glory. I mean, Habakkuk finally here rejoices in the Lord, and it's not because God answered his prayer about how he would deal with the sins of Judah. It's not that God answered his prayer and how he would deal with the sins of the Babylonians, that he would display his justice. It's not when God tells him his plan. It's none of that. It's just when God finally strips away everything and that Habakkuk realizes that he's enough. It's not when Paul saw heaven and the glimpses of those who've been brought out of into a, glor- into a glorified state. It's not that. It's when Paul says, in my weaknesses, I found that you were enough. I found that you were the treasure. I found that you were everything. And so for a skeptical mind, it's not, we don't have to show a skeptical mind heaven in the Bible and say, you want to believe in streets of gold? Here's streets of gold. There's mansions there. Don't you want to follow them? That's not the greatest message. Paul's saying, look, the greatest message is suffering believers who find that Christ is enough. The skeptical message is a wife who has cancer and a husband who's died and a child that lives as a stillborn. And the family says, that's heartache for me and I will weep for my loved ones, but Christ is still enough. He's enough. And that is, will blow a skeptic's mind. And the reason why we teach you scripture here in integrity, the reason why we want to show you these things is because we want you to be sustained in him alone, that he is the goal. He is the treasure. And if without him, we're nothing. We're nothing. And my hope is this morning we would rejoice in the same way that Habakkuk did. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy and the God of my salvation. So maybe you came here this morning and you were hoping to get close to God so he can get you stuff. Maybe that's, maybe that's where you came. Maybe you say, look, I, I, just want, I just want to get a better grade on my paper or I want to get that job or I want my marriage to be healed or I want my, to get out of debt and that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. It's to get you stuff. And, and let, me, let me tell you this. You're not going to solve any of your problems by just trying to get stuff. You're only going to solve issues by knowing him. And finding hope and trust in him alone. Maybe you came and you don't care about getting stuff. Maybe you don't care about God. You have enough stuff. You have enough stuff where you don't need God. And that's true. Here's, here's the reality for you. If you have enough stuff and you don't have God and you don't need God, this is your heaven. The world that we live in is your heaven. If, you're not, if you don't know Christ, the world that you live in right now is your heaven. The, the, the joy of a believer is this is the closest, the world that we know it right now for a believer, this is the closest that we get to hell. This is it. This is the closest that we get. The joy that we have is to look forward to a new day, believers. Non-believers, this is your heaven. This is it. So if you're trying to find your hope in the things, it's not going to deliver. It will not be enough. You have, you've loved the creation, not the creator. The joy is found in the creator. And so my hope is, that's you this morning, 
that you would look at Christ, that you would see his perfect sinless life, that you would see his sacrificial death on the cross, you would see his beautiful resurrection, his glorious resurrection, and that you would look at that truth and you would repent of your sins and that you would believe in the gospel and that you would find your hope and your joy in him. Maybe you came because you are looking for the next high. But I want to tell you this morning, we just see it in scripture so clearly. It's not about highs. It's not about looking for the next high. Look, there's lows in life. There's highs and there's lows. And the reality of the gospel is, will you trust him in both? Is he enough in both? Maybe this morning you came weary. And I know that there's many of you who came weary. Maybe you just need to find rest in him and rejoice and say, as Habakkuk said, whatever you have for me, God, that's enough. Whatever you have for me, God, that is enough. Because you're enough. And my prayer is, this morning that we'll all leave here saying the words of Habakkuk. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God help us, let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, for humble hearts this morning.